Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast... I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Viv Groskop is a writer, performer and podcaster. After changing her career from being a journalist to a stand-up comedian, she wrote her first book, I Laughed, I Cried. She has since gone on to perform seven years of sold-out, one-woman shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. She's the author of the best-selling book, How to Own the Room, and now hosts a podcast of the same name. A series of conversations with, mostly, but not exclusively, women about power, confidence and public speaking. And today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Well, hello, Viv Groskop. How the hell are you? Hello, Jess Phillips. I'm very well and all the better for seeing you. Oh, that's that. Well, I'm sure this is going to make me feel better. I've been feeling a bit rough. I've had a bit of a tummy bug and the roof of my office fell in this morning, like the ceiling collapsed. This is major drama here. (laughs) It was major drama. And uh, yeah, there was a leak in the flat upstairs where my office is in Birmingham. And so the ceiling fell in. So I've had a tiny bit of a like, ooh day but other than that I'm great so this podcast is all about letter writing are you much of a letter writer I was a really serious letter writer as a child you know I'm 1973 birthday so you know obviously no internet for a long time like long into my kind of early 20s wasn't until I had any idea what the internet was, didn't have a mobile phone until 1998. So I now know that because that's when I met my husband and we failed to meet up on our first date because I didn't have a mobile phone. Yeah, so letter writing was very much the equivalent of social media for me growing up in the 70s and the 80s. And I grew up in in Somerset in, in the really lovely, oh, well, we could have a whole podcast about this, actually, a town called Bruton, which at the time was a very lovely, sleepy, gorgeous little place. I obviously thought it was really boring because I was a teenager and that's what all teenagers think about growing up in the country. But it has now become trendy Bruton as named Britain's hottest town by the Telegraph, etc., etc. And recent property buyers in the Bruton area include... George Osborne. No way. And 
Every time I speak to my mother, she will say, oh, I've heard that Matt Hancock has been looking around the estate agents. And then another time it will be David Cameron. Um, so there's a, what is the attraction of? It's basically a place that has become known as kind of the new the the new Cotswolds. So yeah, there's all of that going on. There was none of that back in the day when I was growing up, and the only entertainment you could find was to write letters. So I belonged to one of those international pen pal things where you could tick a box of. Oh my god! You're the first person to admit this. If uh, oh, I mean, if... I know it's so sad, but uh, I mean, I have no, sh- I have no shame. Um, so I uh, yeah. So you joined up to an agency. It's like so. It's like a. An agent, like old-fashioned Tinder, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily for dates. It's basically, yeah, like find a friend for like lonely, sad teenagers. Well, I was probably about like 12 or 13 when I did this. And I had pen pals in America, in Israel, uh, all over Europe. Um, I went to visit my pen pal in Israel. It was amazing. So yeah, then I used to write loads of letters and every day the postman would bring something. It makes me really sad thinking about it now because now it's such a big deal to get a handwritten letter from somebody. Um, I think it's really important that we all try and you know, send at least a card or something because it means so much to see something in somebody's handwriting. But back then, you know, I was breaking the postman's back with all my international pen pals. And do you keep in touch with any of them now? No, weirdly, I don't. Sometimes I've thought, what would it be? I haven't even like Googled them because I think that would be really creepy because I do remember most of their full names. I would totally Google them. Oh, I feel creepy about it. I think it would be a bit of a weird thing to do. And I, I, I think if they wanted to find my name's really distinctive and I haven't changed my name, none of them have looked me up <laughs> and said, hey, Viv, <laughs> really interested to see what you're doing with your life now. So yeah, I've just left them alone, which is how I think they want to be. Even the one you went to visit in Israel? Oh, actually, no, that's not true. I am friends with her on Facebook and she now lives in South Africa. And yeah, I mean, if she if we were in the same country as each other, we would see each other. Um, yeah, so that's the, actually, yeah, that's a good thought. I'm friends with a few of them on Facebook. But yeah, they were very intense friendships, actually. And we used to send each other things as well. We used to send each other cassette tapes of our favourite music. And we used to send like... Twix bars and Mars bars and things, but in the language of our country. So I would receive these like exotic chocolates. Were all the letters written in English? I used to write because I studied French and later on I studied German and Spanish at school as well. And so I did have pen friends that I would write to in that language, but often I, yeah, I had lots of my pen friends I wrote to in English. I mean, that is impressive. Uh, Also, I mean, I remember being on telly with you once and you did this amazing thing where you knew literally everything about the Ukraine. And (laughs) I was like that. Oh my God, you're like a genuine Ukraine expert. And like, you weren't there as the expert on Ukraine. You could speak your pronunciation and everything was, so you're generally a linguist. Yeah, I am a linguist and I speak Russian and I have lived in Russia. I used to work for Russian Vogue. And I, the reason I know a lot about Ukraine is because I had a Ukrainian boyfriend um, who I met when I lived in Russia. Yeah, so having a pen pal or a boyfriend or a personal connection to somewhere, it always gives you a, 
handy level of knowledge for which you require no effort. It was absolutely, it was like remarkable. You were definitely not there to talk about Ukraine. And then some, it was, it, <laughs> it, and also it was like played to your real strengths as like a stand-up comic and somebody who was an expert in Ukraine, because I think it was like the day that the clown had become the president of Ukraine. Yeah, so, yeah, a stand-up comedian had just been elected as the president of Ukraine. And I was going on, this was on This Week with Andrew Neil, right? Where the now defunct show... And yeah, I was going on as a guest and I was like, oh, well, you can ask me anything you want about the president of Ukraine. <laughs> I bet no one has ever said that to him before. <laughs> I bet no one's ever said, actually, I'm Ukraine. Knock me out. You know, no, no stand-up comics gone. Well, actually, I, I'm completely and utterly across everything that's happening in all the Baltic states. So have you kept all these pen pal letters? Have you got some? Yes, they are somewhere in my parents' house. And yeah, it's very weird looking at them because they're like strange artifacts from another century. I mean, they literally are from another century. And they are strange artifacts because that will never exist again. I mean, it, because of the internet, that kind of connection. I think would be incredibly weird to have now. I mean, my, my sister is a French teacher and she takes uh, school groups into Europe, although that's becoming incredibly difficult. That's a whole other po podcast. But now, you know, that idea of having a friendship with somebody that is sustained by letter and keeping in touch with that family, I mean, it's totally non-existent now. Whereas when I was at school, it was everybody had a, a pen friend or a school, school exchange. I mean, some of us were more nerdy about it than others, but it was just a thing that everybody did, like having an email address. I'm very glad that you had lots of international pen pals. But have you got any letters from anybody really notable? On this podcast, we've had Mandela, we've had Tony Blair comes up literally, you know, sort of, Half the time, people are like, I've got a letter from Tony Blair. He seems to be a prolific letter writer. The only letter I can think of, and this is just going to be really weird and esoteric for people. So I was obsessed with French in particular when I was a teenager. And I knew I wanted to be a writer of some kind. And and I also was really interested in fashion. And I kind of thought maybe I'd like to work in fashion or something like this. So I was sort of obsessed with anyone who is a bit French and a bit Chanel and all that kind of thing. So there was a house model of Chanel who is, she's still around now and she has her own fashion label, who's called Ines de la Fressange. And if people saw a picture of her, they'd recognise her instantly. She's this amazing, uh, willowy, tall French woman with dark hair, you know, sort of opposite of my pygmy British self. And I idolised her. And I wrote a letter to her when I was about 13 it, at Chanel, I put you know, like Ines de la Fressange, Chanel, Paris. And she wrote back to me. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, she wrote back to me in the most beautiful French handwriting in gold pen. I must still have this somewhere. And she just, you know, wrote something like, you know, thank you for your letter. And I hope that you will continue to follow your interest in Chanel or whatever, which I kind of haven't really. I'm sorry <laughs> to say, Ness. I realised it's a bit out of my league. But yeah, that was a major highlight of my life in Somerset was to receive a, a letter in gold, gold pen from Paris. That is amazing. 
And those gold pens, I remember there was a big craze for writing with a gold pen. And often you you get them and they would like splodge gold, like solvent all over your paper. They could be temperamental. So she, I think she went to some effort to send you the gold pen letter. Yeah, I feel though that the for a certain kind of person, the Ines de la Fressange gold pen letter is the equivalent of the Tony Blair letter. Like, I feel like... I think it's better, if I'm honest, because he's sending letters to anyone. <laughs> well, that's. I think actually a lot of people might have received those letters. I'm not sure how special it really is. Oh, really? I mean, I'm going to say not... Do you think that lots of people were writing to this quite niche? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So, yeah, maybe she's not quite the same as writing to Tony Blair. Yeah. yeah, I mean, lots of people would have written to him, but um, yeah, I think I, I think it's nice that she bothered to write back. I think that actually most people who I talk to about this sort of thing, they say I wrote to somebody when I, who I really loved them, that and they did write back. Like the Queen of Denmark had written to somebody, uh, just because they wrote her a letter and said, "Oh, you know, I don't want to go to school anymore. You should ban school in Denmark." And the Queen of Denmark wrote back. Um, like you know, I think that actually people. And when people write letters to me, I do try and respond in some way. Um, I do try to do that. Although I have to say, I don't necessarily sit and write handwritten letters. Do you receive a lot of handwritten correspondence as opposed to digital? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I I receive lots and lots still. Not to my house, obviously, which I'm I'm quite relieved to say. It's like the equivalent of writing to Chanel Paris, Jess Phillips Yardley. Yeah, I get a lot from around the country. I mean, some are horrible, obviously, but um, like today I went into my office and I had a pile on my desk and my staff keep them for me to respond to the stuff that isn't anything to do with my constituency or a particular case that they will sort of pull out and start working up. I get lots and lots of correspondence from all over the world, actually. And and lots of people will email you and tweet you and, and do it digitally. But I do still get lots, I'd say 10 a week at least, letters from people, handwritten cards, letters, postcards. People send me little trinkets quite a lot as well. My children think that I'm sort of magical because if I say I like something on Twitter like people will send it to me like I once said like during the general election it happens especially like when you're like stressed out and you'll tweet things like oh it's been a stressful day we'll need to like hit the tequila and someone sent me a crate of tequila um (laughs) and like I'm doing I'm doing life wrong (laughs) and uh people will like you know like send sweets and things if you say that you like them like I heard you say that um, and because I wear hoop earrings a lot, people will often send me hoop earrings or red lipstick people sometimes send. It's like just cute things like I have a uh, bangle on actually that somebody had sent me today. Well, I hope it's really clear from this podcast that I really like Chanel handbags. <laughs> Chanel handbags. I mean... I would also like things from France, but I just want the processed cheese so processed that even Britain have decided it's not okay to have this cheese in. I'd like to say for the record as well, I do like good French cheese as well. I just really like apericubes in different flavours. But anyway, onto your letters. We're here to talk about you not processed French cheese. That is a brilliant letter that you received, Trista. I think that might be one of my favourite ones that we've had, that this model, it's very esoteric, but it's very good. And no one else has had a gold letter yet. You're the first gold letter so far. 
I have asked you to think about the people you would want to send three different letters to. The first one being the person who means the world to you. So who would that be? Yeah, the person who means the world to me is Michelle Tucker. And I really hope... I hope she listens to this and I hope it doesn't really freak her out and make her feel totally terrified and never want to be in contact with me ever again. Um, Because she is someone I've only known recently. I've known her for about a year and she's my lockdown buddy. She's my swim buddy. She's part of a new group of friends that I've made uh, in my middle class cliched lockdown of taking up outdoor swimming in the Thames, <laughs> um, which I always, it's something, it's weird for me to see so many people have, have done that um, because it's something I always, always wanted to do and just thought I'd never have time for. I'm not saying there's anything good about COVID, there isn't, but that has been the one benefit for me is that it pushed me towards doing that thing. And I was always really scared that I wouldn't be able to do it or that if I did it, everyone else who did it would be like an Olympic swimmer. You know, they would be like, you know, who's the guy who was on Strictly? I can't even remember his name now. You know, Adam Peaty. Adam Peaty. I mean, I thought they would all be like Adam Peaty and this would be completely terrifying. And they would all be wearing wetsuits and Olympic medals. And I don't even wear goggles. I wear a bobble hat. So I was scared. And one of the first people I met through doing it was Michelle Tucker. And she's just been such a wonderful friend to me. You know, she lives local to me. And I think in other circumstances, we probably never would have met each other because I never used to hang out a lot around where I live. I was always up in town. I live in Southwest, in the Southwest of London, in Teddington, and I would spend most of my time in central London, but now I'm at home a lot more. So that's how I got to know her. And she runs a group that meets every Friday morning by the side of the Thames um, at six o'clock in the morning. And it's called Win the Morning, Win the Day. It's an offshoot of a national movement for outdoor swimming and walking that is a bit like Park Run, but for swimming and walking. And there was a group that first started in Southampton and Michelle started this group um, in Surrey. And yeah, a group of us meet at six o'clock in the morning every Friday and we go for a little walk around a field and then we get into the water for however long we can stand and then we get out again and drink tea. And it's just been such a lifesaver for me. And it's also been a real eye-opener that I could make a new friend uh, who I feel a real affinity with. And she also reminds me so much of my grandmother, who I'll talk about <laughs> for my other letter, who's a someone who means so much to me, who, you know, died 15 years ago. And Michelle reminds me a lot of my grandmother and her sense of humour. And it's just such a gift to me that it doesn't matter how old you get, it doesn't matter how your life works out or what's going on, you can always make new friends. You know, if you just have the guts to just turn up, you know, I, I to just turn up and meet people at this thing you can always find new people who can bring something into your life did you feel a bit awkward when you first went did you feel a bit like you know people standing around and other people knew each other and oh yeah definitely well uh, Michelle and I were sort of introduced by another mutual friend called Emma and I'd seen this friend Emma had been posting on her social media that this was happening and that Michelle was running this group and I kind of thought oh I just don't know like what if I don't like them or they don't like me and I didn't even know where it was and the first time I went there it was absolutely pitch black and it was foggy and they meet and they walk around this field 
And I had no idea where we were at all. And I was just thinking, you know, these people could be murderers for all I know. And it's a place where people walk their dogs. And at some point out of the mist, these two giant dogs that looked like wolves appeared. And they were dogs that we we see them every week on the walk now and we know their owner and that's totally normal. But at the time, I was like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? But yeah, luckily, you know, Michelle is one of these people who, you know, in her day job, she's called the wellbeing supervisor and she's an occupational therapist. She helps people out in their workplaces and in their families with managing life. And she's one of those people who is just really warm and welcoming to anybody who comes to this group. So she always makes everything okay. So yeah, just so great to know her when you said michelle tucker i immediately thought it was going to be like a girl from school when you said it because michelle tucker i just don't think girls are called michelle tucker anymore like babies aren't born michelle tucker anymore they're like characters from a book where they are of a certain age like when i was a kid every like loads of girls were called michelle and i just don't i don't think you get it anymore yeah well don't you think that michelle tucker is like a classic grange hill name exactly it sounds like something yeah, from grange hill it sounds grange like hill. something from like yeah. a moody bloom book or like you know yeah. michelle tucker, i mean i think the girl in the class is... who everyone fancied like michelle tucker like that yeah, is what she'll like that it's definitely <laughs> one of the reasons i think that we get on well as well is that i think we are born within definitely a year of each other probably we would have been in the same school year and we have exactly the same (laughs) references yeah that definitely helps it is lovely when people talk about like friends they've made later in life because especially when you're asked to think about somebody who means the world to you it's very easy to for nostalgia to override a sense of reality, even if it's totally true and and actually you feel very, very strongly about the people from your childhood, people from happy moments, people who are permanent. But nostalgia is a dangerous drug. And so often when you meet somebody new and you really like them and think, oh my gosh, I could tell this person things. I could could rely on, actually, I think it's the reliance. It's thinking, actually, I think I could rely on this person who I haven't known very long. It feels somehow slightly more meaningful and sort of special because like my mates who I've known all my life, you know, they do have to help me out when things are going. Like there's a sort of contract of both nostalgia and also just years of me doing stuff for them but like it feels real and true and different when it is somebody new I think and that is important yeah and I guess I also wanted to sort of pay tribute to the weirdness of Covid and our friendship with Michelle Tucker our friendship will always be connected for me to that moment and that intensity and also, you know, I don't want to get I don't want to get too deep about this, Jess, but to the idea that I think that's been quite uppermost in my mind that we're all on some level changed by this time. And I don't feel like I'm the same person as I was before all of this happened. And for some people, that is on an incredibly profound level. Mine's only very superficial. But to know that the person that I've become now is still somebody who can go out and do stuff, make new friends, try new things. It meant a lot to me. And she represents that for me. Also, everything in COVID, especially in the lockdowns, because it is historic. I mean, you are literally living through a historic thing happening. Everything felt poignant, like just going to the supermarket for the week felt like we're going to get through this we just bought some Percy pigs, you know, like it, like everything is weighted with 
this sense of a sense of depth that you can't necessarily that's not good bad ugly but it is just different and so it feels different Um, and I think that there will be lots of conversations when we can come out the other side and not always feel like we have to say obviously there's nothing good about Covid because you know lots of people died and one has to be careful with one's language but it has totally changed almost everybody's lives I see it politically I see a complete shift in both people's expectations for good and bad, their desire to be involved in things, that's for good. People are joiner-inners in a way that, and not just the clapping and the going and helping deliver food, not even just like the the sort of stuff that got reported. People became have-a-go heroes in all sorts of things. There's definitely going to have been benefits without question. Yeah. Well, this win the morning, win the day thing, there's now more and more groups and they've got a Facebook page and they've got people in Australia and America doing it. And that's purely been born out of the pandemic. Do you feel like you win the day when you do that? I mean, it sounds like losing to me. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of, I don't want to convert everybody to getting up at five o'clock in the morning and going swimming in the river. I really don't. Like if it's for you, great. Um, For me, I do like that sense of I've got up and I've done something. And then after that, the day can go to shit and it doesn't matter. (laughs) It sounds hard to me. Yeah, it's not something I would have done previously in my <laughs> my previous life, but I think adventure is really important to me and travel is really important. And there was a massive part of my life, you know, before everything became so reduced. And to have that in some small measure, even if it means something really tragic, like me getting up basically in the middle of the night, scraping all the ice off my car and driving to a muddy stretch of the Thames, it's got to be done. And does she know that she means this much to you? I think she does. Yeah. I hope she's not freaked out by this. Otherwise, I'll be ostracised by the group. Lose the morning, (laughs) lose the day. I hope she'll take it in the spirit in which it's intended, which is one of love and appreciation. And how would you sign your letter off to Michelle? Michelle, you have shown me that it is possible to make friends even when you feel like an old boot who is jaded and depressed. And when you think no one would want to spend time with you because you don't even want to spend time with yourself anymore. You've reminded me of the importance of a shared sense of humour and a shared sense of the most important cultural references. No one else is so wedded to Joe Dolce, Top Cat and Leg Warmers. Thank you for reminding me of what really matters in life, which is being silly and not taking anything too seriously. Yours sincerely, Viv. So your second letter I've asked you to prepare is to somebody who is no longer with us. So who would that be? Yeah, well, I've already mentioned her because Michelle Tucker reminds me a little of her. And it is my grandma, Vera, who died at the age of 84 in 2006. And she died a few weeks before the birth of my daughter, who's 15, who's called Vera. So obviously I named my daughter after her. And my grandma was an amazing person. And it's funny that the older I get, and I'm now sort of within, must be about probably five years time, I'll be the age that she would have been when I was born. And and so, you know, she would have become a, a grandparent in her 
early 50s. Closer I get to that, you know, the time when I knew her as a child, I'm now coming into that time of my life myself. And, you know, knowing more as I get older, I just realised what an extraordinary person she was. She was a real force of nature. She was someone who never got the education that she would have wanted and really wanted that so badly for me and instilled that in me from a very young age that you've got to grab every opportunity that you can. You have to not expect other people to do things for you. You've got to take it for yourself. She was never envious though or funny with me about the opportunities that I was lucky enough to get. She was always just really happy for me that that it was happening. Um, she was from Manchester, um, but she spent most of her life in Amersham in Buckinghamshire, where she and my grandfather ran a corner shop um, for 40 years that was called Chesham, uh, Chesham Boys Lane Stores, so Boys Lane Stores. My grandparents, you know, they had a shop that had a massive selection of sweets behind the counter, and then they sold all kinds of other stuff, like they had a baked goods around arrived every morning like at six in the morning and when I was a child my sister Trudy when I was three she was born and my sister was born with dislocated hips which is now not really that much of a problem but in the 70s it was a really really big deal and very very difficult for the parents Um, my sister had to be put in plaster it was a really tough time for my parents so they sent me to live with my grandparents in the shop (gasps) That sounds like heaven to me, the idea of living in a corner shop. I know, it was amazing. And I used to, you know, sit up on the counter and have whatever sweets I wanted and, you know, be the only treasured grandchild um, whilst my parents were looking after my sister. So because of that bonding that I had with them, it's probably my earliest memories of life. We're in this shop I can still kind of smell it now like the sawdust in the storeroom and the they always had huge huge boxes full of golden wonder crisps of every flavor you can imagine including sausage and tomato flavor which I think was then discontinued and I just used I could have whatever I wanted it was great Uh, yeah so I really was close with them from then and then a couple of years later they retired and they came down to live in Somerset. We lived separately from them. We lived in different houses, like five minutes walk apart, but I saw them every day of my life until I left home when I was 18. And yeah, my grandma was just a very, a really warm and good humoured person. You know, she just found everything funny. She always saw the good in everyone. And a lot of this came from a huge tragedy that had happened in her life, which was that when my father was a child, when my father was a baby, he had an older sister who, when she was three, when my dad was a baby, his sister died of meningitis and she died within a 24-hour period. So there was no warning of what was happening. There was a misdiagnosis. It wasn't caught in time. They took her into hospital and she just died overnight. And then my you know, grandparents, who then would have been in their mid-twenties, just came out of the Second World War, have this baby, just got married. They're then left with this grief. And my grandma always talked to me about these things as well, which was extraordinary. She talked to me a lot about her daughter that she lost. She talked to me about how difficult it is to hold a marriage together when you've lost a child, how difficult it is to find hope and joy and happiness in small things when something so terrible has happened to you and that she had had to work really, really hard to find that optimism again. 
And oh yeah, I mean, the older I get, that I just feel this in- incredibly privileged that I was so close to her and that I spent so much time with her. And I feel quite lucky that my grandmother wasn't from that tradition of don't tell anyone, don't talk about it. I mean, she did tell me that when her daughter had died, they were running a pub with her mum uh, in Dagenham, my well, my great grandma. And they couldn't stand living in the pub anymore because everybody knew. Everybody knew that they were the couple who'd lost a child. So it was then that they moved to Amersham to Chesham Boys and opened this shop. And for a long time, she said, I didn't tell anybody there that I had had another child because how do you tell them that? And that she would always feel awful when people would say, oh, you, you have children. How many children do you have? And she would have to decide whether to say one or two. Because if she said two, then she'd have to explain. And that, you know, she was, I loved that she was a person who could talk about those things. And I think that is a huge generational change that has happened, you know, over the last 50 years is that now we take it for granted that it's okay to say those things. But I think in my grandma's generation, it wasn't. And she definitely learned that you can get through those things by talking about them and by being open about it. Like the idea that there was just two generations ago, people were expected to just stay silent about things and not talk about grief and pain and and difficulty. So your grandma must have been incredibly impressive to felt that she, she should talk about it and also talk to you as a member of her family. When you were in Russia, did you write letters to her? Oh, that's such a good question. I must have done. I was in Russia mostly in the early 90s. Uh, In any case, if it had have been later on, then my grandparents were certainly never online. I don't think they ever opened an email in their life. But I hated writing letters when I lived in Russia in St. Petersburg because it was just after the end of perestroika and glasnost and things were opening up but life was still pretty tough and anytime you would go to the post office you'd be there for three hours oh right yeah logistically difficult yeah you'd have to queue at one window to say i'm thinking about sending a letter and that would be one chitty then the next is i i have my letter the next chitty i need to pay for my letter like you and everything was a queue so i hated sending letters but i did used to send some very occasionally and when my grandma died oh there were you know boxes and boxes of stuff from the shed of all of the terrible articles that I wrote in my early career as a newspaper journalist that she'd cut out, which would just, you know, even if I wrote something that was like a tiny paragraph, if it had my name on it, she'd kept it. All of the letters and postcards that I sent from every single school trip from when I was like 11 years old, she kept everything, everything I ever wrote. That is brilliant. Extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Um, it's a really nan thing to cut things out of the newspaper, though, isn't it? It's like my, my when I was at university, my nan used to send me like coupons or like a story about you know girls being attacked at night. Like I was like, all right, nan, I've got it. Like just like little snippets. I remember that. Yeah, my grandma used to read Take a Break magazine, and she once cut out a story competition from Take a Break. And I think you could win £200 if you sent them in a story. And she sent it to me with the intent that, like, you want to be a writer, you should write in and then you can get the £200. And I was like, Grandma, I don't think they're looking for that kind of story. I think they're looking for, like, a kind of a... I married an alien. Yeah, I've had sex with the milkman and I don't know what to do. Like, I don't think they're 
kind of writing I'm really going for, but I really appreciate your support. <laughs> that is brilliant. Do you think that your thing about women owning a room and because obviously the sort of classic now of the idea of women presenting themselves in a business environment or a political environment or but actually your grand working in a pub and also like being a shopkeeper, there is something about being a presence in the community and those people being memorable facets in the community. Do you think that some of it comes from her? Yeah, totally. She ran that shop like she was, you know, a cross between the Prime Minister and Angela Rippon or yeah. I don't know who, who it would have been then. But, you know, or, or a pub landlady. You know, she had that sort of pub landlady energy of come into my space and I'll make you feel good. <laughs> like, not in a creepy way, in a good way. Like, you know, come in, you're welcome. I've got you. I've got time for you. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, I guess having that role in the community as well, I remember even when I was very little, understanding that some people couldn't pay for their food that week. And my grandparents had to decide, shall we let it go over another week and trust that they're going to pay? Shall we take it round? Because they're embarrassed because they can't pay, but they do need the food. And making people feel okay about that kind of thing that's a real skill. In How to Own the Room, on the podcast and in the book, I call it happy high status. And it's basically that energy of if someone's got a problem, you're going to be there for them, but you're not going to let them encroach on your time so much that you haven't got time for someone else. And it's being able to sort of meet everybody where they are. And I, yeah, I've worked um, as, I loved working as a barmaid actually. And it's that whole thing of like making eye contact with somebody like, yeah, I've seen you. I know you're waiting. I'm just dealing with this person. And I definitely learned that from my grandma. So how would you sign off your letter to your grandma? Dear grandma, thank you for the fact that you were always, always there for me. You showed me what it is for a person to put others first and as an adult, I have realised that is really not the only choice that you can make. It's the hard choice. So thanks for always making it for me. Thanks for showing me the value of cheerfulness, optimism, hope and fun, that it is OK to laugh even when life is bloody difficult. Thank you for expecting me to work hard and for indoctrinating me with the belief that you can overcome anything in life through education. I'm supposed to be a writer now, but I find it really hard to put into words the enormity of what I have to thank you for, because some things are beyond words. Not thank you, by the way, for getting me addicted to chocolate digestives. That was really not helpful. Thank you, though, for everything else. And you know just how much. Yours sincerely, Viv. That is definitely a generational thing as well of wanting you to eat sweets. <laughs> yes. My grandma, I think it was like just providing, especially people who were in the war. My grandma used to put sugar in my tea when I, because she looked after me while my parents went to work. And she'd put sugar in my tea, which I hated. And she said, don't worry, I won't tell you, Dad. You can have sugar in your tea here. And I was like, I, I actively dislike it, Grandma. I'd rather have it without. But she was like, no, 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 like three sugars in it and stir it round. I was like, you are mad, woman. And like constantly making me cream horns and like feeding me like. Yeah, you got to love it, though. Love a crazy feeder. <laughs> feeder. 
weird. I love that. (laughs) We'll be back for Viv's final letter after a short break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the final letter I've asked you to write is to somebody who doesn't know they mean the world to you, which Michelle Tucker might not realise until you, she hears this. But who would that person be? Well, this person, I hope one day they will realise exactly what they mean to me and perhaps they will realise by hearing this. Uh, that person is Oprah Winfrey. I love Oprah Winfrey so much. In fact, when I was just talking about my grandmother, I was thinking that is the energy that she had in the shop is Oprah. You know, like, I'm in the zone. <laughs> Come and tell me your problems. I'm going to make everything okay. <laughs> you know, look under, the, look under your seat. You'll find some, <laughs> some keys for a new car. Like that real sort of... Um, yeah, I love Oprah. Um, Oprah is somebody I really admire as a, you know, a presenter, as a journalist, as an actress, as um, a businesswoman. I, I mean, I love she's this great epitome of jack of all trades which everybody's always saying to you oh no you've got to only choose one thing and you've got to be brilliant at one thing don't try to be mediocre at lots of things and Oprah's like sod that I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want and if I'm going to be acting in a film I'm going to win an Oscar for it <laughs> you know she, I, so I love her I love her can-do energy and the connection that I feel to her I would have definitely seen her on the television but the time I was really aware of her was when I was a young journalist um, working in newspapers around so 1998 I met my husband I went freelance in 2001 so around that time Oprah launched O Magazine it ran from April 2000 which is when I would have first bought it until I think it closed down last year because now it's basically online and people don't buy magazines anymore but in its heyday it had like three million subscribers and I was working on a newspaper and I got the magazine ostensibly like to get ideas about like, what are they talking about in America? What books are coming out? What celebrities are people into? I got it as a kind of a work thing. 
But I realized when I got this magazine, oh my God, wow, they're talking about all these amazing ideas about therapy and self-development and um, do you have a guardian angel? Um, Who is your spirit animal? (laughs) And all of these things that now we think about as being, everybody knows about those kind of ideas, you know, about expressions like being in denial um, and, and things like that, all those kind of therapy speak things. They were talked about in this magazine and... There were loads of articles about doing things for yourself and not expecting other people to do things for you, taking matters into your own hands. And it was round about the time that I was realizing that working in an office and working for other people was going to be a really bad idea in my life. And it gave me the confidence to think, yeah, I can just quit my job and be a freelance writer. And and I did that in 2001, like after a year of being indoctrinated by this magazine. I mean, that's quite and, a shift that Oprah yeah, had in your life. Yeah, she really did. In 2011, I did my 100 gigs in 100 nights and I had this trip to Atlanta, which I made for work because I was writing about it as a journalist, about the whole cult of these Oprah conferences that happened every year that were connected to the magazine. Um, I had to do gigs in Atlanta as a comic as part of my 100 gigs while I was out there. So, And that was when I was a very, very new comic. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never performed in, a, in the US before. I didn't know how I'd go across to American audiences. I didn't know what the deal was over there. And so it's very vivid in my mind that at that time I was thinking about how do you own a room? How do you convince people to, to like you? How do you get people to listen to you? And I remember when I went to see Oprah, she did an hour on stage and it passed in a flash. It was like three seconds because she just held every single person in that room in the palm of her hand. And every single person would have sworn that she had looked them in the eyes. She had that kind of energy and that kind of charisma. That is, that is rare. I would say that level. Um, But what, what a gift. I wonder when she realized that she, do you you think she honed her craft or do you think? Oh yeah, she she definitely did. I've read a lot about this. I mean, she, she started out in breakfast TV and being a news anchor on local television and she realised quite quickly, oh, I'm really good at this. I could be really good at this. <laughs> and she just applied herself and studied herself and made sure that she dressed in a certain way that made people talk about her. And she really mined that whole seam of being empathetic with people and getting them to tell their stories and really listening to them like a friend. And that was something that people hadn't really seen on television before. And so she was very aware of crafting herself in that direction. I was once um, in a car at a literature festival, like going to and from the station or something, with, with Richard Dawkins. And for some reason, I decided I really needed to know what he thought of Oprah. And I said to him, um, Mr. Dawkins, would you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, no, certainly. And I said, um, what do you think of Oprah Winfrey? And I thought he would say, you know, she's utterly ridiculous. And he said, I think she's a really, really fascinating example of people's view of religion nowadays. She is treated as a religious figure. And then he talked about it, said more and more and more things. I can't remember what he said, but uh, I just thought it was really interesting. I was like, oh, wow, Richard Dawkins has actually taken the time to analyse Oprah's appeal and think about how it fits in with faith and religion. So how would you sign off your letter to Oprah Winfrey? So 
Dear Oprah Winfrey, thank you for being a person who is so completely over the top in how into self-help they are that they make it okay for other people to be just a bit into it. Thank you for normalising the conversation around mental health, therapy, family dysfunction, shame, body image, anxiety, stress, all those things which are now talked about maybe too much, but used to be something you didn't talk about at all. You have brought so many ideas into my mind and my life that I otherwise would not have had access to. Some of them completely brilliant, some of them completely bonkers, but all of them eye-opening and inspiring. Thank you for taking your shoes off when I saw you on stage and pretending that you're normal too and your expensive shoes pinch your feet. I know it was just a bit of theatre, but I'm a schmuck and I really bought it. Yours sincerely, Viv. Oh, the shoe thing is brilliant. It is brilliant. It may well very well be true that it was painful for her to wear her shoes and who doesn't want to take them off, but she will have thought about it. It's like, but you have to be really skilled to make people not care. Politicians doing like, you know, rolling up their sleeves in a hospital or like, you know, that I'm going to take my tie off shtick. It's just like, oh, dude, like it's not convincing enough. Like, you know, whereas you can do something that is so obviously a... Like, you know, this is a device. This is a device uh, that I know will make you feel comfortable. But even if they know it, it's still comforting. That is a legendary skill. That's next level. And and certainly in politics, you can see this dreadful training that goes into some people about how to try and seem normal. And it's just like, ugh, it's it's naff. But that is, that little thing is a brilliant thing. Well done, Oprah Winfrey. Well, it has been absolutely brilliant to hear from Michelle Tucker to Oprah Winfrey. Michelle Tucker sounds like someone from Grove Hill. Oprah Winfrey, basically a religious (laughs) figure. So it's quite the range. Well, I hope this has cheered you up a bit on your disastrous ceiling falling in day. And I hope you've got plenty of cubes to cheer up your evening. I've got two whole boxes, which I'm going to go and eat. But thank you so much for sharing your time and your brilliant, brilliant people with us, Vivi. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.